Welcome to Ladylike Lessons, the podcast where we empower women to be their best selves and challenge the idea of exactly what it means to be ladylike. I'm your host, Christy Spencer, and I'm thrilled to continue the celebration of International Women's Day on 360 Talk Radio for Women. Today, we're going to talk about the key ingredients to creating a supportive community of strong women by using empowering etiquette. This etiquette podcast isn't about high tea or whether or not you can wear white after Labor Day. It's about doing our best, shining a light on everyday situations, and sharing some simple, practical advice for our complex world. As women, we find ourselves in challenging situations, both personally and professionally. And while there are countless resources on how to be successful, it can be overwhelming to sort through the noise. That's hopefully where I come in. I'm a certified business etiquette instructor, and I founded The Polite Company in 2021. I did that after I graduated from the Emily Post Institute, and then in just one year, I've taught business, dining, and social etiquette to over a thousand students. And now I'm happy to have the opportunity to connect with you as we celebrate women everywhere. Throughout this podcast, I'll be sharing my top empowering etiquette tips and answering etiquette questions submitted by women just like you. Today, we'll learn about the power of giving compliments, gaining allies, We'll also talk about the power of asking for advice, honing our empathy, and how we can share our passions to become more confident and connected. This is a two-hour podcast, 120 minutes with me, you, and a couple of my friends. I encourage you to download it and listen along this week on your way to work or as you exercise, and bit by bit, we'll get through it together. Now, let's get started. When we're talking about empowering etiquette, we're talking about knowing how and when to ask for what you want. It's really that simple. It's having the confidence to know how and when to ask for something. Let's talk about speaking up and why we don't. People want to please other people. They don't want to rock the boat. They aren't comfortable saying something or correcting their boss or saying that we're an expert in something or sharing our accomplishments. We need to learn how to speak up. And it's not only that we're going to speak up, it's how we're going to do it. And that's one thing that etiquette can help with. Etiquette can help us gain power and fuel our relationships. So let's get started. The first component of empowering etiquette is the power of a compliment. We all know how getting a nice, sincere compliment feels, and we should think about how it makes others feel as well. So there's a couple things that you can do to make sure that your compliments land well. The first thing I want you to think about doing, especially in a work situation, is to compliment people on their talents and their work and their abilities. When you get into complimenting people on how they look, if they've lost weight, what clothing they're wearing or anything about their appearance, you're really getting into dicey territory We just don't know how that compliment is going to land. We want to make sure the compliments are genuine and spontaneous. Now, what I mean by spontaneous is that 
you don't have, uh, let's say, a greeting that you always give where you always say, hi, you look so great, or hi, I love your shoes, or oh, it's so good to see you, I love your hair. Those kinds of people are fine and they are nice, but those compliments don't come across as genuine as they would if they didn't always come at the same time. So think about that being genuine and being spontaneous. Another thing about spontaneity is when somebody gives you a compliment, don't match their compliment with another compliment. We want that to be spontaneous and honest. And so if you're only giving somebody a compliment because they gave you a compliment, again, our compliment's not going to go as far as we would like it to. The best advice I can give you for receiving a compliment is to simply say thank you. You don't have to over-explain or tell somebody, oh, I got this shirt on sale, or oh, do you really think I did that well in that meeting? Just say thank you. And when we give those compliments, we become more powerful. I have an exercise for you that I'd like you to try to see if it works for you. Right now, I want you to take a couple of moments and think of the best three attributes of your closest friends. I'll give you some time. When I think about the three best attributes of my friends, uh, adventurous, thoughtful, honest, those are all words that come to mind. Maybe your friends are great listeners or great bakers or they give fantastic advice. Friends can play so many roles in our lives. So when you think of the attributes of your friends, how does that make you feel? What mindset does that put you in? I hope you feel inspired and happy. That's what the people closest to us should do for us. Now, in that inspired and happy mindset, I want you to do the second part of this exercise. Now, I want you to think about your best three attributes. This might take you just a little bit longer, doesn't it? It's hard. But if you can have the mindset of how you feel when you talk about your best friends and the inspiration that you feel, and then use that same mindset to think about your best three attributes, you will uncover your best assets and the positive traits that make you unique. My key takeaways when it comes to giving and receiving compliments is to remember that they are empowering make sure that your compliments are honest and spontaneous. When you genuinely admire something about somebody, let them know. When you give somebody a compliment, you're not only making them feel good, but you're advocating for them. And when you advocate for others, you become more powerful yourself. It's a win-win situation. I'll be back after the break to answer more of your etiquette questions. Are you looking to improve your personal brand and make a great first impression in the virtual world? Look no further than Inside Out, a personal branding and virtual etiquette class brought to you by Christy Spencer. She's a graduate of the Emily Post Institute with over 20 years of experience as a hiring manager in television newsrooms. She understands the importance of creating a positive image and effectively communicating your goals. In this virtual class, Christy will evaluate your online presence, social media profiles, and overall appearance to identify areas for improvement. She'll also cover essential etiquette skills like networking and conversation and include a wardrobe challenge to help you create a signature style that reflects your personal brand. 
With Inside Out, you'll gain the skills and confidence you need to make a great first impression, build lasting relationships, and achieve your goals. Don't let a lack of confidence hold you back from unlocking your full potential. Visit thepolitecompany.com to learn more and connect with Christy on Instagram and Facebook at The Polite Company Christy. That's K-R-I-S-T-I. Take the first step toward becoming the best version of yourself today with Inside Out and The Polite Company. Let's tackle a couple of etiquette questions sent to me by Polite Company followers. Our first question goes really well with the idea of compliments and how we can make those compliments pay off. The first question comes from Madison, and she asks simply, how can I best ask for a raise? We've all been there. This is an uncomfortable situation. That's an uncomfortable conversation, something that we dread. But we have to remember that if we're talking to our supervisor or our boss, they're aware that we are there because it's a job. And they're aware that everyone wants more money. Asking for a raise is uncomfortable. And we tend to steer clear of difficult conversations. But if you like your job and you want to make more and you want to become more powerful in that job, this is a conversation that you're going to have to have. So to help boost your confidence, Madison, I think you should make a game plan. One thing you can do is to collect those compliments from others. This can include any feedback, positive comments from colleagues, supervisors, clients. Get it all together in one spot and take it with you when you decide to ask for that raise. I also want you to think about your goal. What is the amount that you are looking to request? You'll want to do some research here and have a realistic number in mind. If you need X amount, but no one else in your organization is making that amount, that's unrealistic. Show that you've done your research and that you're prepared with a realistic number. Here's a sample script that might be helpful. My performance data shows I'm valuable asset to the team. I think it's fair to ask for X salary moving forward. How does that sound to you? When you're having the conversation, make I statements. Avoid talking about the other person, any of the reasons that you are needing extra money. Keep those conversations focused with those I statements. You also want to think about your timing. That is crucial. You'll want to make an appointment with your supervisor and give them ample notice. This will show you respect their time and this is a serious conversation. My last piece of advice is whatever you do, do not sell yourself short. Know your worth and stand by it. You might get a no. And if that happens, yes, it's discouraging. But be prepared for that no. And if that's what you hear, ask what you can do moving forward to get that raise that you requested. If your supervisor's answer is that that's not ever going to be possible, they've just given you a roadmap for your future success. And that means going somewhere else. Either way, you are better off with that knowledge than you were before that conversation. So have the conversation, do your planning, Use those I statements. Madison, thank you for the question. I hope this advice helps you and anyone else who is looking for a raise. I know it can be difficult, but it's worth it. Good luck. Next, 
some advice from the Polite Company followers when it comes to whether or not we should friend coworkers and bosses on social media. My friend Jenny sent this in. I had a unique situation because I worked at Facebook at the time my Facebook account was getting established. So we all friended each other because we needed to use our own product. Having said that, since then, I've gotten requests for board members of three, two, one. Having said that, I've gotten requests from board members of nonprofits I've worked with, and I will accept their friend requests. I've also gotten really good at ensuring I have a clear friends group. So when I post something I don't need colleagues or business acquaintances to see in their feed, I'll make sure not to include it in that group. I think this is great advice. And of course, you know, Jenny was there with the OG Facebook back in the day. So of course, she knows all the ins and outs. But I thought this might really be good for everyone else to hear. Because being able to segment your audiences into what different people see, that can take a minute to set up, but it can avoid some uh, situations or, you know, letting people know too much about yourself. So I thought that was just a great tip. Thank you, Jenny, for sending that in. Melinda wrote in and said, I think it's all right to friend somebody at work, but I don't want to talk about work outside of work. You can work with people that can become really good friends, but I will not friend someone if all they want to do is talk about work or gripe about work outside of work. Also, really great advice. We need to think about what we are putting on social media. Do we have friends and coworkers at work who are going to see this? If so, this is not the place to gripe about your job. And even if you don't friend your boss, but you friend coworkers, social media is out there for anyone to see. So don't think just because you don't friend somebody that they will never see it. I mean, we can all screenshot and, and share whatever we like. So I have a few pieces of advice when it comes to the etiquette of whether or not you should friend your boss or coworkers. First, I want you to think about the risks versus the rewards. What do you typically do on social media? What have you done in the past? When you friend them, all of that is fair game. Knowing whether or not to friend or not, it's tricky. And there's a few factors. First, you want to consider the nature of your job and the company culture. If you work in a more formal setting, such as a law firm or financial institution, it may not be appropriate to friend those coworkers on social media. If you work in a more casual environment, such as a creative agency or, you know, like Jenny was working at Facebook, yeah, it's probably going to be more acceptable. But think about that culture that you work in, you also want to think about the level of privacy to the work that you do. If you work again in a law firm, that is, you know, very strict privacy. If you work in healthcare, very strict privacy about what you can and can't say about your work. So you want to think about that before you decide to go on social media as well. I say err on the side of caution. If you're not sure whether it's appropriate to friend a coworker wait until you get a better sense of the company culture and that person's personality. You can also ask your colleagues what their thoughts are on doing that or not. And remember, it's 100% you are not obligated to accept anyone's social media request or explain why you did or did not accept. If you do decide to accept requests from business acquaintances, you should look at your past posts and pictures. Would you print them out and put them on the bulletin board in your office? If not, get them off of your feed as well and pay really attention to your comments, your likes, and your pictures going forward. 
My last tip is to watch when you post to social media. Make sure if you do friend colleagues or your bosses that they are not seeing you comment on social media during work. This is a big red flag, and this is something that can affect you negatively in your real life, not just on social media. So make those comments and posts outside of work. Now that we're talking about friending and being friendly, there's another way that we can use etiquette to empower ourselves, and that is by using etiquette to gain allies. That's a fancier way of saying making friends. And that's my second tip for empowering yourself with etiquette. You want to gain allies. It's so important to surround ourselves with people who lift us up and have our backs, especially during tough times. Having allies can help us feel supported, provide new perspectives, and help us achieve our goals. But how do we gain friends and allies? This is pretty easy. You gain friends and allies by being a great friend and a great ally. That means flexing your etiquette muscles of being kind, giving each other grace. Maybe that means giving an honest apology when needed. You would think in that world of Instagram and Facebook and TikTok, we would be more connected than ever. But the fact is we are not. A study about loneliness came out in 2020. Cigna polled over 10,000 adults. Of those 10,000 adults, 61% reported being lonely. Among the groups who reported feeling most lonely were adolescents, older people, and moms with young children. That's a big segment of our population that is at risk for loneliness. A Snapchat survey in 2019 asked people what the most important attributes they look for in a friend. What would your answer be to that question? What are you looking for when you're looking to gain new friends and allies? The people who responded to this survey said that honesty and authenticity were the most important factors when it comes to gaining friends and allies. And the least important thing was having a large social network. When I talk about the etiquette of making friends, I can give you three actionable steps. The first one is you want to make a good first impression. We are drawn to confident, interesting, upbeat, engaging people. When you enter a room, smile at people. A lot of us have a friend today that might be negative or whiny, but I can almost guarantee you they weren't like that when they first became your friend. Otherwise, you wouldn't have wanted to friend them. Over time, we can get to know people a little bit better, and yes, we might know their flaws and understand them and still love them in spite of, but in that beginning phase of meeting someone, being positive, having something encouraging to say is so important when you're trying to gain them as a friend or an ally. The second actionable step that you can take is to assume the best in people. We'll talk about this a little bit more in the podcast, but if you're going to make an assumption, and we all do when we are meeting new people, we assume all sorts of things about them. Make an assumption that you're seeing the best in them. I also want you to make one other assumption and make the assumption that they are going to like you. When you assume that people are going to like you, you go in with a great attitude, they're much more likely to actually do just that. 
The third step you need to take to gain friends and allies is to make plans. If you meet someone at an event and you have a great conversation and you take a selfie and you put it on social media, you've made a post, but you haven't necessarily made a friend. So gaining friends and allies takes work and time. You have to create rituals, whether that's a text message to check in with somebody once a week or a once a year girls trip. Doing that work looks like celebrating birthdays and having brunch on Sundays, but it also looks like being there for a breakup or holding somebody's hand while they're waiting to see the doctor. When you take those three actions and you're positive and confident, you assume the best in others and you assume that people are going to like you, something else will happen. We will become vulnerable and that's where the magic comes in. We have to be real with one another to make those connections. That means sharing our dreams, our fears, our histories, and our hopes with one another. It's so much easier to pretend that everything is perfect. I'm fine. You're fine. Everything's fine, right? When we share what's not fine, that's when we can genuinely connect. After this break, I'll wrap up my best etiquette tips for gaining friends and allies and introduce you to an authenticity expert. We'll be right back. I'm excited to tell you more about The Polite Company. As a graduate of the Emily Post Institute and with over 20 years of experience as a hiring manager in television newsrooms, I understand the importance of creating a positive image, making a great first impression, and effectively communicating our ideas. Whether you're just starting out in your career and need help landing that dream job, or you're a seasoned professional who wants to improve your communication skills, I can help. I offer in-person and virtual sessions that are tailored to your needs and goals. I'll cover a wide range of subjects, including business, dining etiquette, social skills, communication skills, and much more. With The Polite Company, you'll learn how to make a great first impression and build lasting relationships. Don't let a lack of confidence hold you back from achieving your goals. Reach out to me today to find out how etiquette coaching can help you. You can contact me by going to my website, thepolitecompany.com. That's thepolitecompany.com. Welcome back to Lady Like Lessons where we're wrapping up our section on gaining friends and allies with our key takeaways. First, you want to make great first impressions by being confident and positive. When we're making friends, this is a time where we actually want to make assumptions. You want to assume the best in other people, and you also want to assume that they're going to like you. You want to make plans and do the work. And finally, allow yourself to be vulnerable and authentic. Speaking of authenticity, I'd like to introduce you to our guest here on Lady Like Lessons, Natalie Collins. Thank you. So happy to be here. Natalie is an expert in customer experience, authenticity in commercial environments, and consumer fanaticism. She's also an Emily Post certified business etiquette trainer, and that's actually how we Natalie, can you tell us a little bit about your work? Sure. So I've worked in marketing and business development for about 30 years, and a large part of that was working at universities. So I went ahead and got higher education qualifications, my master's and my PhD, and my area of research 
was authentic emotional engagement at work. In other words, how to get people to really love you in the workplace and how to get them to want to do things for you. So one of the things that's really important in this area, and it was a branch area that I became an expert in, is authenticity. That is to say that people respond much better if they think you're being authentic with them. So later in my career, I started looking at various programs that would help students get employed. In other words, student employment is a huge, huge area of need around universities and university life. Unsurprisingly, the more authentic someone is, the better their chance of getting employed. But one of the other things that became really important is knowing how to act in the workplace and being appropriate. So like many, many universities around the world, uh, my university was happy to support me in becoming an Emily Post business etiquette trainer to be able to pass that knowledge on to students. And so I did that initially. That was the goal. But I, I you know, I became a convert. I, I did the course and I really loved it and, it. and it made me think quite deeply about how we act and why we act the way we do. That layer on top of everything else I'd studied and practiced in my career gave me a, a really, really good understanding of not only how to get people to love you, but actually how to make them feel welcome and respected and how to make them feel empowered using politeness and etiquette and very sincere and real initiatives, which is, I think, what we're going to talk about today. Absolutely. So it makes me wonder, how can we, can we fake authenticity? Well, you can. And, and, and I want to, uh, I want to go take a second to explain that because that's something that, you know, I hear a lot, like fake it till you make it, right? So um, human beings use something all the time. Well, you, we're doing it all the time, even as children, whether you realize it or not, which is we're triangulating information, right? So we're looking at different ways of authenticating what we see, whether it's true or not, right? So if mommy tells you you'll get a cookie, if you clean up your toys, one of the things you really know is, well, did you get a cookie? Was mom telling the truth there or was she just playing you, right, to get you to clean up your toys? This is how basic that triangulation is, right? And we do it everywhere all the time. We do it on menus and restaurants. We do it when we're looking at emails, right? So the more authentic something is, the more valuable it becomes to us, right? So you can absolutely fake the message of authenticity by, in fact, meeting all the requirements in the triangulation. Now, if it's something as simple as if you clean up your toys, you'll get a cookie, and then you clean up your toys and you get a cookie, I would argue that's authentic. Whether you love the cookie or you love the arrangement or not, that's pretty simple, right? But if you say something like, we're a workplace that welcomes people of all genders, and we mean all genders, right? Then people are going to actually have a look and say, what are the signals that make that statement true? And is that really how you feel? Or are you just trying to virtue signal? And so they'll go ahead and they'll look at a variety of things. Now, you can go ahead and fake that variety of things. Like you could say, of the 10 things they're going to look for, you know, we've hit seven. We're not sincerely interested in this gender spectrum, but, you know, we're going to just like throw out seven things. I put to you that the sincerity, in other words, what you feel inside may not be genuine, 
but the messaging then becomes genuine. So is is seven out of 10 things enough to get the buy-in from employees? It really depends on the employee. You know, there are people who are black and white, who are 100% or 0%. You're in or you're out, right? But generally speaking, people will give you a little bit of space, right? Because you're human. The other thing is, is if you're too perfect, it also could come across as being fake, right? One of the things that's kind of interesting with this chat GPT business that we've got going on is that, you know, the grammar and the punctuation and the spelling is all very, very good. <laughs> there aren't that many typos. So it may be that we start looking for things like typos and irregularities to define humanness, right? And that's a form of authenticity in and of itself. But generally speaking, on the whole, people will want most measures to check out. Yeah. And I think they know that instinctually as well. You know, I mean, even if you can't articulate it, there's just going to be something off or, or something that just doesn't meet the expectation that you had. Absolutely. And one of the biggest mistakes that people make in business is to underestimate vulnerable populations. So when you're talking to little kids, they know. Right. Don't think that they're not sophisticated. They're sophisticated. You're talking to, let's say, students who, where there's a very big power differential or patients, right, uh, in a doctor's office. They know. And they may not be able to tell you how they know, but they know. And so as a consequence, one of the biggest mistakes that we see people make is they underestimate their audience. And a really good way to never underestimate your audience is to just not underestimate anyone. Just assume they know. And then you'll be okay. And so you'll say to yourself, well, how do I act in a way? How do I signal and deliver in a way that's consistent, assuming my audience is sophisticated? Yeah. So we're not going to dumb this down for people. And we're going to um, assume that they're smarter than we are. Absolutely. Or, I mean, it would be great if people assumed that, you know, when, when I'm in a commercial environment, sometimes I'd be relieved if they just thought I was as smart as they think they are. <laughs> Right, right. That would be refreshing. So what advice do you give leaders about managing with authenticity? Uh, well, there's a few things that's really important. I, I actually give a whole presentation on this, and, and it's, it's a lot. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Authenticity has four measures. And so you can go through each measure and talk about how well you score on each of those measures, right? But very briefly, the four measures are objective authenticity. Are you who you say you are, right? So, you know, this is one of the problems Elon Musk is encountering right now. He's not a developer, okay? And he's running a company that relies heavily on developers. Does he understand what he's trying to do? Is he who he says he is, right? That's a big one. There's subjective authenticity. Are you perceived to be authentic and real by people who understand and know, right? What are the other signals that you're giving out? A cultural authenticity. Are you messaging in a way that the culture understands? In other words, I could be signaling to you something, but if culturally you're not going to understand what that means or it's not the appropriate cultural token, then it's, going, it's not going to fall in the right way. And finally, existential authenticity, which is the toughest to me, which is appearing human. So you're imperfect enough that you're not like a robot and it doesn't come across as a scripted company line right? It comes across as something genuinely coming from you. Elon Musk doesn't have that problem. I think everyone is pretty clear that it's really, really coming from him. So he's definitely existentially authentic. Um, 
But I would also say that no matter what you're signaling, it's not really going to be understood unless you're doing it in the right way for your audience. So um, I'll use this as, you know, as an example, when you have um, someone like, you know, our vice president right now, who is a woman of mixed racial background, she's in an interfaith marriage with a Jewish guy, you know, there's a lot of diversity happening around her. You know, if she comes out and she says, I'm going to tell you what it's like to be um, to be mixed race, to be Indian and black in America. Right. Uh, she can definitely talk from her lived experience. I don't think anyone's going to say to her, well, you don't know what that's like, because that's actually who she is. Right. But I don't think she could stand up there and say, I can tell you what it's like to be a white man in America. She can tell you what she thinks it is, but she can't necessarily tell you what it is. And I think that that's a really important distinction, because especially in the area of diversity and inclusion, we have a lot of people who are making assumptions about a lot of other people's lived experience. And lived experience is very, very broad, but we have to have respect for what that is and the context in which that occurs. Well, and that really lends itself to, you know, people who are in management and people who are leaders in a company need to have diverse backgrounds because we're not all going to come from a place where we know everything about everybody else. But maybe if we have as a whole, you know, and have those voices, then we're certainly much better off for it in a lot of respects. Absolutely. And I think that this is one of these things about bringing your whole self to work versus what do you leave at home? Right. One of the questions I really like to ask people, especially if they're further along in their career, is I like to ask them what they originally trained as. So what was your first real, real career? You know, be it hospitality or engineering or whatever. One of the reasons I ask that question is because it tells me about them. How, how do they think? How are they trained to think? Right. What are their skill sets, for example? And it then informs what they do later. Right. So who they are becomes really, really important to me. I like to know about people's ethnic backgrounds. Are they first generation American? Did their family come off on the Mayflower? Did they grew up in Minnesota or did they grow up in Mobile, Alabama? I want to know, not because I'm nosy, although I am also nosy, but also because it informs who the whole person is. And it gives me a better picture in terms of what what culture may I be speaking to? How do I most effectively communicate with that person? Having said that, it's not my right to know. It's actually none of my business. So I have to be very careful about the way I ask those questions so it doesn't sound like an interrogation and that it sounds like something, information I'm using for the purpose that was intended. And so it's really a common, and this is con something comes up commonly in business etiquette, what do you ask someone? Are you allowed to say, where are you from? Are you Italian? You know? Um, are you Latina? Like, how do you broach that subject? And I think it's very different for different contexts and different people. But the more you know about someone and the more respectfully you treat that information, I've rarely had a situation where it's considered impolite. Right. It is tricky because we don't know always what to say and, and we want to say the right things. But I think if you do come from that place of genuine curiosity and as opposed to judgment, you know, that can definitely help. We had sent a couple emails back and forth about this being International Women's Day. And this podcast is part of a bigger celebration on a talk radio network about International Women's Day. They said, you know, is this 2023? Why are we still doing this? Um, the, the 
theme this year is embrace equity, though. So, you know, I mean, I look at it as a chance to have a platform. And this is the journalism part of me, but we need a peg. We need this story to be timely. But how do you what do you think about the, the idea of International Women's Day and what all comes with it? I think I think it's really important to understand, uh, especially now that we have more genders than ever out, you know, out there. I think it's really important to understand that how someone is perceived and how they identify becomes a big part of who they are and what they can access. There are a lot of people who will say, um, you know, that we've reached that equity point. I would say to them, you know, for some people, maybe, you know, but for many women around the world, we haven't. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is if you look at research around just general, uh, general things that happen in society, you know, like, for example, things like health and well-being of children, right? Things like um, the economy, right? Things like birth rates, live birth rates, right? What you're going to find is that in almost every country that I've been made aware of, and I'm not just talking about developing nations, I'm talking about the United States as well, there is a disparity around women's education and positive outcomes. In other words, if you, if you educate women, you will find better outcomes in health and the economy and children's well-being in every country, right? Because women are still a more vulnerable population overall. So, you know, equity is a, is a really great target, but it's a stretch target. Right. And I think one of the things that's really important is when we say, you know, uh, International Women's Day and we celebrate women uh, who've accomplished things. The other part of that is as a woman, you shouldn't feel bad because like you're not prime minister. Like, you know, one of the issues I have is is that, you know, we're celebrating all these women who are so accomplished. And and, you know, on social media, there are these women every day who do these great things. And, you know, like, you know what? I'm not Madame Curie. I didn't I didn't discover anything. But that's, you know, that's what. That's okay too, right? I think, you know, one of the things that's, uh, that's going to become a very interesting question is that there are people who don't identify as women. They may, they may uh, be gender fluid, for example, right? So they're the, the then-they group, but they are perceived as women. And I'm really curious to see what the research will say on equity around those groups, right? I think that that's a really important um, and, and trans, you know, women who who came to be women through through that journey, you know, and how, you know, what they, you know, what they feel. And in fact, one of the one of the best examples of the difference between men and women in the workplace came from a trans uh, female to male academic who I think is still alive and working in California. OK, this came out like, oh, about 15 years ago. Right. So this is someone with the exact same resume. Was it was female now male. Right. Same exact resume, same background, same research, because they're the same person. And they're in a unique position to tell us what's the difference between being a woman and being a man in a professional workplace, the university. Right. As a scientist and as a leading scientist. And I'll never forget uh, what they said. They said, one of the key things I noticed is that in meetings, I don't get interrupted anymore. And I don't have to repeat myself anymore. And I thought to myself, that's so odd, right? 
to me, I don't notice. I mean, it might be happening. I don't notice that I'm female, right? And yet, years later, in the United States, there was a study on women judges. And the study showed that women judges get interrupted by lawyers more than male judges do. And so one of the things that I would put forward is we're doing things we don't even know, right? And equity is when we get to a place where those things are across. If we're interrupting, we're interrupting everybody. Right. Yeah. Across the board. Emily Post might have something to say about the interrupting, but we're interrupting everybody. That's equity. And actually, we're going to tackle a couple of etiquette questions in a sure. few minutes, and this is going to fit perfect in that conversation. So one thing I wanted to ask you is how can business leaders try and make their workforces and their workplaces more inclusive for people with those diverse backgrounds? So one of the things that's really important when it comes to diversity is that understanding that diversity isn't one dimension, right? So it's not just about race or it's not just about like, did you grow up speaking English or what kind of food you like to eat for lunch or whatever it is, right? Or religion. Everyone, and I'll give you a really, really good example of what I need. So every year, people who are Muslim, many people are Muslim, they observe Ramadan, which means they don't eat as long as the sun is up. And so one of the things that I used to do in my workplace is I used to say to everyone, Ramadan starts today. Can we please just keep in mind that some of us may not be eating during the day? It's considered very impolite to eat in front of someone who's fasting because, like, they're fasting. Can we all keep in mind that maybe for the next few weeks, don't be on your Zoom, like, shoveling things and share them out, or just be a little bit more respectful about how you may offer somebody something to drink or eat. And also keep in mind that if you're having an evening meeting and the sun is going down and somebody is shoveling food into their mouth because they haven't eaten all day, that's kind of okay. Did this impact a whole bunch of people? No. Did I know how many of my Muslim students may be observant of Ramadan? I mean, some people don't care, right? No. But I think that one of the things that was really nice about that is that it was about being polite and being respectful of what somebody else might be going through. And you just don't know who that might be. And so that's a, a sincere and authentic way of being inclusive, as opposed to something that's considered a little more tokenistic, which is kind of like sending out an email with like a little meme saying, you know, the worst is like happy Ramana, because you would never say happy Ramana. Like that's just such a weird, you know, like that was the first thing that came to my mind when yes, you like that was, you know, don't. so, you know, I think that this is, you know, this is one of the things where if you went up to someone who was Muslim and you said, Ramadan's coming up. What's important to you, which is actually what precipitated this initiative, they would say, well, this. So we can't make these kind of observations because one person thinks this or because we think it and we're not in that group. One of the things leaders have to do is recognize that everybody's different and everybody wants a level of flexibility that's, that's different. Diversity means just that. It means diversity, right? So it's about listening and learning to the people who are around you and recognizing and acknowledging with respect, not just the accomplishments of people who may be associated with them in some way, but also to say, you know, what challenges can I help you meet? It sounds like as a leader, you are so on top of things. You know, I mean, knowing all of the things that people are dealing with, but how can employees bring up that discussion if 
they're not feeling the sensitivity from a teacher or a boss. Well, there has to be a sense of psychological safety if you want people to come forward. And realistically, psychological safety is an environment that fosters better productivity and better outcomes. But what's unfortunate is that a lot of people don't know how to generate that kind of environment. Or they do, but they're not in that kind of environment themselves. So I can be a little oasis of psychological safety potentially for my direct reports, right? But if the larger organization I work for is not psychologically safe, then my ability to deliver on that is going to be compromised, right? And so one of the things we have to be realistic about is we have to be realistic about the fact that there are a lot of psychologically unsafe workplaces and people aren't going to have the freedom to express themselves or be diverse or, or even ask for the things that they need to do a better job or to do the job, right? Um, and you see that online everywhere. It's not necessarily even about their manager being rude to them. It is like literally the structure of their workplace does not allow this. And you're not always going to get it right because like you're a person, right? I had a staff member once uh, and I was in a Western country. This person was not from the West, right? And they were very grateful for their job. Very great, which she knows nice. Um, and they would come in to their shift, which started after mine, and they would like literally stand at my office door and stare at me until I acknowledged them. And for me, this was like very jarring because I was always on the phone. I was always typing. I was shoveling food into my mouth, whatever, you know, like in my office was like my sanctuary. And there's this, this guy like staring at me. And so I would look at him and say, don't you have like something to do? <laughs> and he would say to me, where I am from, we do not start work until our the boss's boss, because I was his boss's boss, has acknowledged us. So I am standing here awaiting your acknowledgement. And I was just like, all right. <laughs> no, please don't do that. I mean, he felt really weird about it. Like he felt really weird coming in and not waiting for me to acknowledge his presence, right? So we came up with a way that I could acknowledge his presence without him standing there staring at me, which made me feel really uncomfortable. And, and to be honest, it was a little stocky, you know, for me. Right. So, um, you know, that was something that I had to do that I had to do for him. And he had a lot of other little quirks that I had to explain to other people on the team. So, Natalie, I know you're uh, passionate about educating people about diversity and inclusion, which we've been talking about, and that you're a counselor for the Trevor Project. Can you tell us a little bit about the Trevor Project? Um, in my role with the Trevor Project as a volunteer, I'm not at liberty to really discuss the details about what I do with the Trevor Project, but I can tell you a little bit about the Trevor Project and yeah. the kind of volunteering initiatives they have. The Trevor Project uh, was started many years ago, and it was it's basically there to support youth in crisis who identify as uh, LGBTIQ. And there's a need now more than ever with the number of people who are recognizing themselves and identifying as trans or as gender fluid. There are a lot of families that are struggling with this, you know, a lot of young people feeling very unwelcome. The young people that the Trevor Project helps are certainly some of the most vulnerable in our community. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to volunteer with the Trevor Project. Certainly one of the great things about volunteering with the Trevor Project is that they put you through a very rigorous training program. And so it is a commitment of your time, you know, to learn and, and to grow yourself in that space. Uh, one of the things that I was saddened to hear about through that training was just simply how at risk some young people are over something that you would think would be in 
every single right of themselves to self-determine, you know, uh, you know, what they wear or what they can be called. You know, there are some people who want to be called a gender neutral name and yet their parents find this to be, you know, not acceptable. Diversity and inclusion, especially for young people, especially in the gender space and the sexuality space, which I would have thought by now we would be really marching forward on. Um, I reflect back on when I was that age, under 25, just a long time ago, before the turn of the century. Um, and I look at my behaviors and my attitudes then, and I look at them now, and it is so different, right? I feel like I've really progressed. And yet, when I look at our politics and some of the messaging, I'm, I'm disheartened. And I am someone who has privilege and who is a professional. If I were just starting out in my life, in the first 20 years of my life, and I got that messaging, I think it would be really difficult. I think, you know, as parents, when we do have a child who's able to articulate their thoughts and feelings and wants and desires, honestly, that is such a great feeling as a parent. In the best case scenario, parents have an extraordinary amount of power. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to utilize that power to ensure that their children have the best start and the best journey forward, right? And so how they perceive the world is incredibly important. You know, I would say that uh, I have met a lot of a lot of parents in my journey working in universities and that not being a parent has given me so much uh, freedom to be able to observe things that I will never encounter myself. Right. And one of the things that I often encounter is parents underestimating their kids. So what I've said about just assume that your audience is sophisticated. Uh, I've seen a lot of parents assume that their kids aren't very sophisticated. If you are going to be a parent, you're going to make mistakes. How do you discover what they are? And, you know, how do you correct them? Or do you have a cut of my way or the highway? So, you know, that's yeah. kind of a... I mean, the, the management style and parenting style are, are so tied together. And, you know, I would tell people it's 50%. 50% what your parents did, and then that's 50% what you don't want them to do. Someone who does this kind of subtlety really well, who happens to be a woman leader, is Jacinda Arden. So she's the prime minister. Well, she's, I think just for a little while longer, she's the prime minister of New Zealand. And she's one of the first female leaders who was able to basically say, I'm not getting it right all the time. I need to shift gears here, right? I need to be vulnerable. I need to be understanding. I need to call out people who are doing the wrong thing. And this is how I'm going to do that, right? She doesn't get it right all the time. And she's been put, like a lot of world leaders, in a lot of very difficult positions. But she does lead with a lot of authenticity. She has a lot of energy and enthusiasm and emotion behind her. So she's a really good example. And she stands in very stark contrast to the, um, to the kind of leader who's kind of like, my way or the highway. Here's a pithy tweet that you are going to use as your Bible to how to act in the workplace. Right. Male leaders can be incredibly inspiring for female workers, right? We don't always have to look to female leaders to, lead, you know, to lead well. Uh, and I feel, I feel like I have had, I've been so lucky to have had leaders who are male, who are incredibly supportive of females in the workplace. And that looks a very particular way. And it's just like that thing of, I know it when I see it, right? 
And I think that it's really wonderful to see that. Um, and in fact, it, it works across a lot of different groups as well, um, even when there's global conflict around certain groups. So, for example, uh, in my workplace, I had a Jewish leader, someone who happened to be Jewish. Not a lot of people knew that about her, but she, she was. She was a huge supporter of our Muslim students. And I'm absolutely convinced that very few of those students knew that she was Jewish. So there's all of this, you know, there's all of this kind of like global turmoil amongst these groups potentially, right? And yet, and yet you, you kind of sit back and you go, oh, interesting, you know, interesting. Yeah. And that takes a tremendous amount of leadership and having an open mind and all of those things. Natalie, thank you so much for sharing your insight with us. And now I'm wondering if you mind putting your Emily Post hat on. And yes. answering a few etiquette questions. So I'm excited. I, I put it out there, as you know, to, to hit me with your best etiquette questions. And from social media and my community and, and other women I know, I, I got some good ones. And so this is going to be harken back to our conversation just a little bit. But the first question is from Kathy. And Kathy wrote, how do you get people to quit talking when you are the speaker? And when you are also not the speaker. Okay, so this is like in a one-on-one conversation, right? Not like in a presentation. I think, I think she is talking about it in a group of people. I taught uh, for a long time, and I've given a lot of presentations. And one of the things that you have to do from the beginning is to control the room, right? And one of the ways you do this is you signal when it is, when it is time for the audience to speak, and you signal when it is time for the audience to not speak. The other thing that you do is you always keep an eye on the clock, right? I can't even begin to tell you how enormously respected the skill is and how little I see it versus its value. So you have a group of people in front of you and you say, we're going to spend the next 30 minutes talking about this. And you're counting that clock down. So when someone is kind of rambling, you can say, you know what? You can interrupt them and you say, you know what? I think, I think where you're going is really interesting, but I'm looking at the clock. We've got 18 minutes left. And I've got 10 minutes of material to still get through. We need to get through that. We're going to go to the eight minutes at the end. If nobody has anything, then we're going to do that. And to be faithful to that, right? One of the things that I always say is nobody ever walked away from a funeral or a wedding saying, my God, that ceremony was too short. Or, oh my God, that eulogy was just too short. I could have sat there for hours, right? That sermon was too short. Nobody ever says that. So one of the things you want to keep in mind is you want to leave them wanting more. So it is absolutely okay to interrupt someone and say that as long as you are carrying the responsibility of being the timekeeper all the way through, right? So really just putting some boundaries on the conversation and realizing that as a speaker, you have a limited time to have, have the attention. And you have responsibility to the wider group. And I think that that responsibility to the wider group and you taking that responsibility very seriously by you not rambling on either, right? is very much appreciated. Whereas if you ramble and you're not letting somebody else ramble, then you just kind of look a little egotistical. I love it. Thank you. Okay, here's another one. This one's from CJ. CJ writes, I had a client who recently missed an appointment and then came in demanding to be seen. The situation became heated and the client was asked to leave and eventually did. I'm wondering about the best way to diffuse those kinds of situations. Wowza. Okay. So that's interesting. Well, I mean, I think this particular the question, we don't know whether this person was the gatekeeper or was the actual person that they needed to see. 
I think one of the things that's really important is to understand the difference between emotional and logical content here. So somebody could be like really upset about something, and yet it's not at all related to the, to the thing at hand. So one of the first things to do is to kind of separate that out. And I, I imagine that the person who is really upset about it is probably someone who has a lot of other stresses in their life. Generally, when people are late or they missed a meeting, they're harried. They're like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. It slipped my mind and whatever. You know, it's trying to get to that point where you're like, look, it's, it's OK. We're going to find a time for you, you know, and to try to get them to the calmness and then to renegotiate the time. There are people who are just completely, completely, I'm living on planet me. And, you know, there's nothing that you're going to do that's going to convince me I'm not the most important person in the room and all that. And those people are very hard to negotiate with. And in the end, you have to decide whether they're a suitable client for you. And, and that's a point at which you just get into dictator mode and say, my next slot is this. I don't think there's anything else to discuss. And then at that point, you no longer engage. It's over for me. I've mentally checked out. I'm on the beach right now in my head while you're going on and on and on. You know, I'm getting a margarita. My toes are in the sand, whatever. Right. And then you just kind of ask the same question. Would you like the four o'clock spot? Yeah. And, and listening some can sometimes, you know, wait for that pause and let there be a little bit of silence and maybe you kind of get to the root of their problem. Um, but yeah, I do want to make a small note here is that basically what I'm saying is don't freak out. It's really hard not to freak out when someone else is freaking out. Right. Because freaking out is contagious. It's more contagious than COVID. Right? <laughs> well, I think we did two, the, both things at the same time. <laughs> the freak out. But, so it takes a lot of presence and a lot of maturity to not freak out. I have many times stood next to a staff member because anytime there was a freak out or a complaint, I love complaints. I love complaints. You learn so much by complaints. I would like, if there was a freak out, I wanted to be there, right? So I've stood next to many staff members demonstrating the not freaking out tactic and, and trying to be supportive of them not freaking out. And so, um, or freak, not freaking out publicly, but freaking out privately. So I think you have to be really flexible about it. People are machines, right? And someone else's panic is going to affect you. So you have to have like tools to not be affected. I like that. So we're not going to freak out. We're not going to match that energy. It takes so, so much uh, self-discipline to do that. Absolutely. And if you if you want, if you want to like have a really good guide, like watch Star Trek, the original series, because like Spock like never freaks out. I had a huge, huge crush on Spock growing up. Huge. Right. And I'd watched every episode and there's one where he takes his shirt off. Like, I don't, you know, I don't want to be like, to not safe for work here, but that was a great episode. But the dude never freaks out. So just be Spock. There you go. That's great, great advice. So I have one more question for you. Kendra asks, how long should I wait for somebody to join a Zoom meeting when there are multiple people in the meeting? Okay, so this is a really good question. And there are a lot of questions around meeting etiquette, right? A lot of what happens is dictated by the culture of your organization. If you act in a against the a cultural norm in your organization, you will likely be treated poorly. So one of the things that's really important is that you have clarity around your expectations, right? Running the meeting, if your organization doesn't have the same principles, right? So for example, you may think that five minutes is enough. 
Someone else may think 15 minutes is enough. I would ask you, in your organization, what tends to be enough? Do people wait there for half an hour? Right? So if regardless of the cultural norms in your organization, you're saying, look, I'm the five-minute lady, right? Then what you need to do when you send out the meeting request is you need to say, we need these people for sure. You know, these are the essentials, the requireds. And the requireds need to be there within the first five minutes for the meeting to go ahead. If they're not there within the first five minutes, we will then reschedule. I think it is absolutely okay to do this in the most polite way as long as it's done in advance. But what happens a lot of time is people assume they're going to be on time. Why? I don't know. Because people aren't on time all the time, right? So they, they don't set something up in advance. The cultural norm is 10 minutes. The person running the meeting is annoyed. Five minutes in, they're like, I'm out of here. So clarity is really important. And I will say the same thing is about leaving the cameras on. So when I ran meetings, I was really specific about my expectations around cameras which is everybody turn their camera off. And if you wish to speak, turn your camera on. And one of the reasons for this was because I had trouble seeing the little hand, you know, and sometimes people would leave them on like when they wanted to say something. But the other reason for this is that many of the people who are in that meeting may have an issue with sitting and listening and staring. In other words, they might listen better when they're moving and they're at home. Do I care if they're on the treadmill? Do I care if they're feeding the cat? What if they're in the shower, but they can still hear me? I don't care. And you know what? None of my business, right? But if you want to say something, I want to be able to see your face as the chair. This was my preference as the chair of the meeting. And I made it really clear and never had an issue. In fact, many people really liked that approach. Yeah, I, lo um, I love that. Yeah, yeah. And it's great for the person running the meeting because you don't need to like worry about anybody except for the people that have the cameras on, you know? But I think that I had to say that, right? Like I had to actually verbalize that, say this is how this meeting is going to be run because in that organization, that was not the norm. Some people have it on, some people would have it off, some people would talk in the chat, some people would, you know, whatever, right? So whatever you're going to do with your meeting, make sure everybody knows what it is and the time frame. And for the love of God, stick to time. People love that. Yeah, I have right. had people I've worked with whose personalities I thought were awful, but they could stick to time and they got my complete loyalty. <laughs> I love it. So we're talking about a little prevention is is worth a pound of cure, as they would say, is to to lay it all out ahead of time and let people know those expectations. Natalie, thank you so much for hanging out with me today and talking about lady-like lessons. Uh, where we're going to empower women to be their best selves and challenge the idea of sometimes what it means to be ladylike. If you'd like to connect with Natalie Collins, please visit her website at theinfinitegame.org. I'll be right back with more answers to your questions and some empowering etiquette tips. 